the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good evening, everyone. Oh, you are there. That's good. Um, my name is Andrew, and I just had a lovely cup of tea and a bit of brownie, so I'm riding a bit of a caffeine and sugar high. So if I talk really fast at the beginning and slowly kind of end up in a slumber, that's why. Um, I want to begin with a small experiment. Uh, put your hand up if you've ever heard or read 1 Corinthians 13 before. Put your hand up if that's the case. Cool, yeah, good, good few of you. Now, keep up your hand if you've heard it in a church service of some kind. Well, that kind of should be all of you, because we've just done that now. Um, how about a wedding service? Have you heard it in a wedding service? How about your own wedding service? Aha, okay. Um, Toby's not so sure. Uh, that's, that's okay. Um, this, uh, this evening's passage is perhaps one of the most well-known in Scripture. It's poetic, it's uplifting and straightforward. Now, I'm sure there's plenty of wisdom that can and has been derived from the love is uh, poem when taken in isolation. But chapter 13 is not simply Instagrammable, mood-boosting poetry. It's God's ancient, yet ever-living and relevant word. Let's remember that, humanly speaking, Uh, The Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, did so out of a loving concern to identify and remedy the various ways the Christians in this Greco-Roman city were self-sabotaging their God-given purpose. In the chapters uh, immediately before this one, uh, Paul has been calling out their misuse, obsession and flaunting of God's good spiritual gifts. Adrian and Gemma have uh, unpacked Paul's message that spiritual gifts are given by the one God to different people within the one body. They've done a great job of explaining um, the ins and outs of spiritual gifts, so I won't go over that territory again, but I commend uh, that to you. But as Paul says at the end of chapter 12, he says, I will show you the most excellent way. And that's what he does in our passage. Now, to help us navigate um, our way through this passage, I want to draw upon the deep wisdom and insight from the greatest theologians of our time, um, being uh, Tina Turner, (laughs) the Black Eyed Peas, and the Beatles. You might see where I'm going with this. As we think about verses 1 to 3, let's consider what's love got to do with this. In the poetic verses of 4 to 7, where is the love? And in verses 8 to 13, all you need is love. I've chosen Tina Turner's 1984 hit, What's Love Got to Do With It?, because I think it captures the challenge that Paul was preempting um, with verses one to three. He shortly, and we're going to look at 
what he talks about love is. What is love? And he's predicting that the Corinthians will throw back at him, but what's love got to do with it? So what has love got to do with it? Now, if you're familiar with uh, the New Testament letters, you'll know that Paul writes in a classical rhetorical style. He uses, uh, uses reason and logic. Uh, each point he makes builds on the ones that have come before. So when we read um, in verses one to three, we see reference, references of tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith. And we must remember that he's building on what he's just taught about in chapter 12 on those gifts. Paul says spiritual gifts are good from God and should be eagerly desired. I don't know about you, but when I've seen God's gifts, those gifts from the Spirit in my life and throughout the life of this church and beyond, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. It's evidence of God's active work in the world through us. Consider Paul's earlier teaching about spiritual gifts as a sort of user manual for the Corinthian church so they can use them correctly and fix their practice for them. But chapter 13 is saying that that's not, however, enough. Not quite As Tom Wright uh, says, but that won't be any good if they simply try to put the lesson into practice in a grudging or shoulder-shrugging fashion. They need to pause, to move into a different key and rhythm, and deepen their understanding of the highest virtue, the greatest quality, the most Jesus-like characteristic you can imagine, love. Changing actions is not enough. We need to have the right attitudes, the right motivation, love. So what's love got to do with it? Everything. Without love, we can only be clanging symbols. Without love, we are nothing. Without love, we gain nothing. We could be the most spiritually dynamic the most outrageously generous, the most scripturally immersed church to ever grace the face of the earth. But if we, our communal, our worship life, was to be without love, it would all amount to nothing. It would be hollow. For one thing, if love is not our motivation and our mindset, what would be taking its place? Pride? That certainly was the case for the Corinthians. Maybe fear or insecurity. A paranoia that we need to somehow shore up our standing before God. Or maybe it's simply routine. Maybe love was once the motivation, but we've slipped into going through the motions out of habit. Is that all love has to do with it? Now, love isn't simply the preferable motivation. It's the whole point. It's because of love that God made us, saved us, sustains us, encourages us, draws us into community together as church. Love has everything 
to do with it. Verses 4 to 7, where is the love? The Black Eyed Peas uh, 2003 song, I think, can in all seriousness be accurately described as a lament. Written in the weeks after the 9-11 attacks, it conveys the anxiety, the confusion and the heartbreak that so many were feeling during that time. People killing, people dying, children hurt, hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach or would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above because people got me, got me questioning, where is the love? For all the world's perceived progress, they were left asking, where is the love? Likewise, in verses four to eight, Paul is asking of the Corinthian church for all their self-confidence and spirituality, where is the love? These verses might sound warm and fluffy to us, but in this context, there's actually a not so subtle rebuke by calling out everything that they are not. We can infer that the Corinthian Christians were impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, proud, dishonouring, self-seeking, hot-tempered, grudge-holding, dishonest, flaky, mistrusting, despairing and apathetic towards one another. I don't know about you, but I think I've reached bingo on that one um, today alone. All of the issues that Paul has been raising throughout 1 Corinthians, I think, could be boiled down to this diagnosis. Where is the love? But what actually is love? We can use the word love quite accurately when I say, oh, I'll have a cup of tea, or I love my wife, or I love my son. Our English words love covers everything from fondness to passion. We're reading an English translation of what Paul originally wrote in Greek. And there are numerous words in Greek that we translate as love. So to help us out, I called in a favour. Quite literally, I called up a colleague who is Greek, and as it happens this week, actually remote, working remotely in Greece, to define some of these different words uh, that the Greeks have for love. She told me about eros. This one is romantic, intimate, even erotic love. To be in love. Then there's philia. This is the love between friends, close friendship. Storhi, 
This is the love that we know within families, parent, child and between siblings. But these are not the types of love that Paul is writing about in our passage. Paul uses a different word, agape. My colleague, when she came to define agape, she struggled to initially kind of capture everything that agape means. Passionate, protective, abundant, sacrificial even. She then summed all of this up by defining agape as pure love. And it turns out in the ancient world, the word agape wasn't commonly used at all. It was actually the early Christians who popularised agape as a word because none of these mainstream words, eros, philia, or he, came close to describing God's love for people, their love for him, or the love that overflowed within the church. Leon Morris describes agape like this. It is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love which proceeds from God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover than from any merits of the beloved. So despite this passage being popular at weddings, it's not talking about romance. Agape love should define the relationships between all people within the church. And don't worry, that is a good foundation for marriage too. And if you want to know what agape love means in practice, we need to look no further than this passage. I'm going to read these verses again and I wonder, do you recognise any of these being shown to you recently or about you to another? Agape love is patient. Agape love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Agape love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now I, in my life today, this week, um, this past year, have seen so much of these things um, as blessings to me. Um, if you want to see what agape love as patience is, just look to my housemates. Um, if you want to see uh, love is kind, look to my home group. Um, yeah, look, if you were to have an insight into my life, if that was some way possible, you would see all of these things, not, not necessarily coming from my direction, but very much um, from others around me to me. So if you have shown agape love to me, thank you. Thank you. Agape love, it's not really a, a feeling. 
you look at this passage again, Paul's definition includes so many verbs. Agape love is love in action. It's an attitude, it's a decision, it's an outlook. And remember, this isn't soft or fluffy love. Agape love doesn't delight in evil and rejoices in the truth. At times, in love, we call things out, we correct, we rebuke, we challenge, we stand up. Just as Paul is doing in this letter, which he writes in love. So, where is the love? Well, the Apostle John Um, in one of his letters, talks about agape love like this. Dear friends, let us love agape love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love, agape love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Where is the love? The love comes from the Father. In fact, the Father is love. The love is in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. The love that flows from the Father through the Son to us overflows and immerses our family of faith. There is the love. All you need is love, verses 8 to 13. I think the Beatles' sentiment that all you need is love goes some way in capturing the final portion of our passage. Or perhaps it'd be more accurate to say, all you need is faith, hope and love. But I don't think that's quite as catchy. Having made the positive case for spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and having made the positive case for love in chapter 13 so far, Paul now considers both gifts and love side by side. We read in um, verse 8 that prophecies will cease, tongues will be stilled and knowledge will pass away. The spiritual gifts will stop. Why? If we look at uh, verses 9 and 10. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. And what is in part disappears because completeness is coming. Paul was looking forwards to Jesus' return, bringing with him the new heavens, the new earth, the resurrection, restoration and renewal of all things. 
Sin, sickness, separation, all gone, all dealt with. Why would we need prophetic insights from God or tongues or knowledge of God or teaching when he's right there with us? Why would we need gifts of healing when there's no more sickness? Why would we need the gifts of leadership or apostleship when we live directly under God's perfect rule? We won't. We have spiritual gifts now because we need them for now. They point us to and they prepare us for the time that is coming, but that has not yet come. As Craig Blomberg says, why will these gifts cease? It's because they are imperfect provisions for an imperfect world, rendered unnecessary when perfection comes. But even when that perfection comes, Paul tells us that faith, hope and love will remain. It's a bit like when a child, as they imitate their parents, they're anticipating how they will one day be. We too should anticipate and practice what it will be like when we no longer have those spiritual gifts. We should hold on to these spiritual gifts, precious though they are, loosely. Because one day we won't have them anymore. But we will have faith, hope and most of all, love. Tom Wright again. Love is God's river flowing on into the future, across the border into the country where there is no pride, no jostling for position, no contention among God's people. We are invited to step into that river here and now and let it take us where it's going. All you need is love. This morning, if you were with us, Laura explains the memorable power of song. And it's my hope the next time when you're out and about listening to the radio and you hear Tina Turner belt out, what's love got to do with it? Or the Black Eyed Peas, where is the love? Or even the Beatles, all you need is love. That you'll be reminded of what we've thought about this evening. That love must be at the heart of what we do. An agape love that comes from God himself and a love that will last for all eternity. So to end, let's reflect once more on those words from 1 John 4. I'll read them at a gentle pace. Um, Perhaps close your eyes or read the words uh, on the screen. Whatever will work for you. Dear friends, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed us his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice.
for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Amen.